Hello and welcome to the On Landscape podcast. I'm virtually here with Joe Cornish and David Ward and we're going to have a brief chat about a, a few topics of interest. Uh, starting with the fact it appears that two out of the three of us are now allowed out of the house. Um, in- England has decided that it's it's all done and dusted and we're okay as long as we keep six foot from each other. Um, how, do you think that's changed anything for you and uh, David and Joe? Uh, Joe, cool. David. Um, uh, well, personally, I'm not. I'm not going out of the house because uh, looking at the um, everything that I read online, it seems to me that it's not time yet to go out of the house. Um, so, um, no. I mean, we we uh, we did actually drive for about five miles the other day to go and do a walk, which is the furthest that we've been since since lockdown um and uh and probably the furthest that we'll go uh for now as well um i've got no i i just don't think that we should be going any further than that at the moment um i think a lot of people are going to be very kind of uh, protective of their spaces as well i can imagine if you go to rural areas um that some people are going to get quite um upset about you being there if you don't quotes and quotes belong um some of some of the photographs we've seen are absolutely terrible around uh, the yorkshire dales yeah uh, and, and the peak district yeah there was one um i don't i think it was maybe gunner side was it where they were camping in the in a ruined uh building um and lit, lit a fire inside it as well which i think it's a i think it's a historic monument that building as well um yeah um i don't know there's there's been quite a lot of debate about whether uh walkers are being picked on um uh you know whether it's fair to to victimize people who are out for a walk um who've gone maybe quite some considerable distance to go for a walk but why shouldn't they is the is one thing but but well my kind of view on that is why should they um you know i i would love to be out on the hills again but i i i don't think now's the time to do it um uh, I, I think you need to wait till uh, R is uh, reliably under one, uh, which it doesn't seem to be in some regions now. Um, won't be in another week anyway. No, it won't. No, no. We're all taking part in a huge experiment. Um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think it's going to climb almost inevitably. It's going to climb again. Um, uh, so. It hasn't really changed anything for me at the moment. Um, um, I don't see it happening for me personally, probably for... Well, I don't need to go out probably until the latter half of the summer. Um, so I probably won't go more than a short distance to go for for a walk until then, I should think. Jan? Well, I, I'm similar on the distance uh, to David. About five miles is, is my limit, although I've been a few times and uh, uh, to uh, a and other woodland in our area uh, in that time. And that's partly because it's got really busy in our local woods. Um, I, I mean, maybe our situation is quite specific. It is quite specific. We are the nearest uh, major recreation zone uh, to Middlesbrough. We, and Middlesbrough happens to be, along with Sunderland, the highest uh, infection rate per capita um, in the country. Uh, so we have a, a kind of interesting, uh, it, it kind of, it's difficult because 
Rosebury Topping and the woodlands uh, either side of it are the the first port of call for anybody from Teesside when they want to go to the country. And and I I did I was walking in the woods on Saturday and it was really busy just on the route up to Rosebury. So you could you could do all the transverse uh, walks through Newton Wood and they were fine. But as soon as you went across one of the up paths, up and down paths, there were people moving in both directions, up and down. And you could see numbers on the top of the topping. And for anybody who knows the topping well, it's yeah, it's not it's not a peak uh, peak, but it's not a lot of space up there. So social distancing would certainly be challenging. So I, I personally do not want to judge anyone else for the decisions that they make, whether they're within the law. Uh, and I totally get it that anybody who's been locked up in a, a city or a town and, and needs to get out into the countryside the desire to do so. And, you know, we are talking about the first place that folks from Teesside could reasonably get to. So it's challenging. Is it the right thing? I mean, that's a that's a question you have to ask the government, really, but um, also starts to get a bit political, doesn't it? So we should probably think, steer clear. Yeah, I, th I think the thing is, it's so variable across the whole country, which is what the uh, uh, devolved regions have decided. But it's even within... Uh, city by city or country or country area by country area it's the same so we are relying on people having common sense and uh i think we'll just leave it at that for now because we know where well, we tends to probably, lead yes exactly just as well i think if we do that <laughs> yeah um okay well I, i've put together a, a couple of questions trying to uh pick out a few topics we normally veer off now and again anyway but i thought I'd ask an interesting one from my point of view is how do people make the most out of photography workshops? So as, as a client, if I want to go on a workshop and, and get the most out of it, do you have any advice for us? Joe or David? <laughs> Joe. Do you, well, well, David, you, you probably actually, I, I, well, I'm happy to try and answer it, but it's more to really kind of fill the time while David's enormous brain is clicking away, uh, trying to come up with a superbly erudite uh, <laughs> description of how. But it's slow. It's a very slow through. brain. It might be big, but it's slow. <laughs> I think, I think that, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I have to say this, Tim, but the answer to that question is it depends who you are, really. Uh, and, and so with that qualification, uh, I think there are uh, numerous ways that, it, I mean, the most important thing, I think, is to approach it with an open mind uh, and, and to come in with, with in a spirit of curiosity and uh, expect to have fun. And if you do that, you, you will learn for sure. Uh, I think with the, with the right tutors, uh, then you, you know, you will, if you, if you come in with an optimistic and positive frame of mind and, um, and just a, a curiosity about photography and about your subject, the landscape, then uh, then you should learn uh, for, for sure. But what you're going to learn, uh, assuming that learning is the primary objective, I think is inevitably going to be down to the individual and where they are with their photography. But from my point of view, uh, from, as an educator, I, I think what I really most want to convey is a... Um, a feeling for the subject matter, actually, even more than the process. We focus a lot on, on process and concentrate on techniques because you can teach techniques. And that's something, you know, that, that's provable in a sense. Um, but the, the, perhaps the, the great unknown is how you communicate a, a sense of 
uh, enjoy a joy uh, really in in the subject matter, the, the sense of connection um, and a personal relationship with it, which some people already have um, for sure, but they can find ways of of expanding it and developing it through coming on a workshop simply by watching others. It's not just about about the leaders, but about other people in the group uh, and the energy that that you get from that. Some of it is to do, as it were, with the way that we we see, uh, and some of it is just a question of of attitude. Of I, I just use one, perhaps rather uh, obvious example. Some people come and will immediately get their cameras out and want to be snapping a lot, you know, taking lots of pictures, almost like an anxiety reaction. Um, and others are, are, are able to kind of switch off and sometimes just sit and think and do nothing. Now, and that's not, I don't want to sort of set it up like it's an either or and that one is bad and one is good. I think that the fact is that those who are very anxious to take a lot of pictures can learn from those who are able to relax and take time. And and sometimes those who are quite slow might also learn a little bit from the enthusiasm and energy that others bring. So, you know, there's a lot of crossover there. Um, and a lot of it, I think, is, is learned by being together and through absorbing uh, different approaches and different sentiments and, and emotions rather than by, as it were, teaching by rote or, or method. Is this rather like at the universities when you get your tutor group? And, and m many people I've heard come out of university and say they learnt more from the people they were studying with than, than from the teachers. And that's no implication on you two, by the way. It's just a, <laughs> an observation. I'm taken. <laughs> um, I, I, oh, very briefly, but what, sorry, David. No, no, go on. Just no, you go. Um, yeah, yeah, I think... I, I guess my feeling is that it works um, on both sides, you know, and when I went skiing, uh, you know, once you've, once you've learned how to, how to parallel turn or whatever, you don't learn an awful lot by being instructed. You learn by skiing. And, and that means being usually with a small group and, a, and an expert's gear. And a lot of it's body language. Uh, okay, you could say, well, photography is a little bit different to that, but you, you know, it's learning to be able to relax and to know when to apply pressure and you know when to relax and just feel free in 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 gravity um, with skiing. And I think some of that in photography is just being able to relax and be, and just be yourself and be fully in the moment, uh, which is you can say, but it, it's actually in some ways you just need time to be there. And I think a lot of what's great about workshops is that we're all there, common endeavour. Nobody's putting you under pressure to come on, let's get back to the car or, you know, we've got dinner in the oven or all the things that people complain about when they try to take their cameras with them on family walks, for example. Um, and I think it's that shared energy uh, that the, the group is very, very important. Uh, it, does, it could be a small group or a larger group, but that dynamic to me is, is perhaps the most important single thing of a workshop. Uh, well, yeah. David. So um, my enormous brain ha, 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 has been <laughs> has been clicking away on that. Um, I think uh, Joe's absolutely right to say that it's very important that you come uh, with an open mind. I think that's probably the number one thing. Um, we usually say somewhere in the notes about um, that we will challenge people uh, to try and do something that's outside their comfort zone that they wouldn't normally do. 
And I think that that's, that's a very good way to learn. I, th I, I also agree that learning by rote, apart from the very basics, you know, like the exposure triangle or, or the, the or the mechanics of, uh, of focusing or whatever, apart from that, I don't, I don't think learning by rote actually helps at all. And even then, you know, people ask us for, um, formulas. Well, where should I focus in this? And I always think that the, what I try and teach people is actually you need to, um, you need to reality test something. So rather than getting, downloading a, um, a table off the internet and going, okay, that's my hyperfocal distance. I'll, I'll focus there and then it'll all be fine. You take a picture, you look at it on the back, you know, you have this fantastic thing with digital. You can look at the back and zoom in at a hundred percent and go, yeah, yeah, that's sharp actually. Or no, no, I didn't quite focus in the right place. So reality testing exposure, reality testing focus, all of those things are, are, are all really important. Uh, but I think the absolute most important thing, um, coming on a workshop in terms of how it improves your practice and, and your, your output, um, is, is the critiquing process is the fact that you have somebody who is, um, as objective as they can be. Um, about your process, what you're trying to do. And, and that involves, you know, um, them, uh, asking you a lot of questions about what you want to do, what, what your aims are, uh, and not just assuming that their aims are your aims. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of teaching falls down. Uh, because if it becomes too, uh, either prescriptive or proscriptive, then actually you're not giving the student enough room to um to actually expand uh and and learn new ways of of working um so that critiquing process is something that happens in formal sessions in the evening with joe and i um but it's also something that happens all the time when we're out and about you know joe and i will come around and we'll look in the people's cameras and we'll ask them some questions about what they want to do and and suggest maybe that have they thought about doing it like this or would that work or won't that work? You know, trying to be as open as possible with, with all of that. Um, and um, it also happens between participants because as, as Joe said, it's really um, uh, a key thing that people get to share everything that they do. So we come back in the evening and we're having a, a session. We're looking at, at photographs from a, from a shoot and you've got, well, let's say eight participants, if you've got two leaders. Um, and you see more often than not, eight radically different sets of photographs from exactly the same location. And that is a huge source of inspiration. If you think that the process, basically the creative process is about uh, divergent thinking. So most of the time when we are working in our um, in our jobs or even at home or going shopping or whatever, we use convergent thought. We're, we're aiming for a single optimal solution, if at all possible. Whereas the creative process is about divergent thought. It's about actually testing out as many different avenues as you can um, and not being too um, set on a particular way of working. And I think that that can be really encouraged in that kind of group environment. I mean, I, I, I remember Graham... Cook wrote a piece, I think, in for you um, around the time of his exhibition, Tim, where where he's, you know, he he clearly doesn't need to come on a workshop with Joe and I to learn anything in a in a kind of straightforward way. But what he does do, why he loves still going on workshops with us, is about the atmosphere. It's about the creative uh, 
air of being there. It's about everybody, as Joe said, being focused on, on just doing one thing really well. Um, and all of that really, I think, can really help. So if your expectation is that you will go on a workshop or two and then you will become a great photographer, then sadly, it's not it's not that short a process. Uh, but if if your expectation is that you will go on a workshop and incrementally, every time you go on one, you will become a better photographer in a, at a faster rate than you probably would do on your own. And, you know, the, because we don't, I, I think the really, the, I can go back to the feedback thing again. The really key thing is that in most forums uh, on the internet or at camera clubs, it's not proper critical feedback. Uh, that it's very much a one-way street. You get one extreme, which is, um, yeah, great capture. Well, what the hell does that tell you? Does it? I mean, oh, you got a good exposure. What, what does it mean? Um, or, or you, or you get the other extreme where maybe in a camera club where you've got a camera club judge who has a very particular view about how all photographs should be taken. And he actually doesn't grow your photography either because he's trying to constrain you to within his viewpoint. Um, so the great thing about a properly run workshop is not only do you get to go to a, um, a, you know, a, a place that Joe and I know and love and, or either is on our own, um, but also, and therefore we have, we've scouted it and we know what the possibilities are and we have an in-depth knowledge about when's the right time to go to a particular spot or whatever. All, all of those are important things. Um, but the really key thing is that you, you get to be in that environment with everybody and you get to immerse yourself in photography with no distractions apart from Saskia's food for the whole week. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree. When I've been on, on, I mean, I've been on a few workshops with yourselves and a couple of other people, and it, it, it has been um, the atmosphere, our creative atmosphere has been one of the best things about it. And the same when you go on on trips with other photographers, it's the time spent in a in a, a safe place where you can just obsess and relax. Yeah, it's a sort of collegiate, topics. a collegiate thing, isn't it? I think, yeah. Um, uh, but the great thing about going with a, a leader, um, as opposed to being with your mate, if you're in your peer group, then generally speaking, you're all of a kind of similar, maybe level of expertise, not always, but, um, but the great thing about going with a leader is that if they're a good leader, then they should be at a, a higher technical level and a higher level in, in most things than you are. Not always. I mean, Joe and I have both had this experience where we have clients who are well, Graham is another one who springs to mind, but there are plenty of others who are, you know, at, at an incredible level creativity, cre in terms of cre uh, creativity. Um, but all of that just, it, it all kind of feeds in, um, in a, in a sort of, uh, osmotic way, I think, uh, to really helping people to advance their photography. Another question, uh, that we were looking at was somebody had been asking about, um, creating photography books. I know our, our friend Dave Cuthbertson's looking at creating a book at the moment and there's lots of questions around what what makes a good photography book? What makes it more than just a collection of photographs? Uh, I know I've got I've got quite a few landscape photography books in my shed outside um, and there's lots of extra things that I don't know. I've got favourite books because I've got some great photographs in but there's quite a few books out there that become more than some of photographs and I'm interested in what you 
think about that, Joe? Uh, gosh, that's a really hard one. Uh, I think that, that for me, uh, I think the, the photographs obviously are very, very important. And uh, uh, it doesn't matter, actually, if, the, if there's quite a variety, you know, different themes or, or anything, because I can remember loving many books that I've had where they vary widely throughout the, the course of the book. I think of Harry Cal the early Harry Callahan books, for example, um, from the 50s and 60s, which are incredibly varied, and some of Irving Penn's. But I think for me, the, the books that I, uh, I, I will uh, have to bring up David's books in this regard, the, the ones that I've found really the most uh, insightful uh, are those where the photographer has actually, you know, made a significant writing contribution. Uh, they've got to be a decent writer. It does help. Um, you know, and I've mentioned her before to you, Tim, but, but Sally Mann's book, for example, mm -hmm. Hold Still, which yeah. is not really a photography book, I learned a feel. I learned an enormous amount about the creative process from from that book, because of her sheer kind of energy and curiosity about the world and the life that she had personally lived, and how she drew inspiration from her own life to make her pictures. Very directly, because that was her what she felt her concerns as an artist should be. Um, and again, there are uh, there are other books where where the contributions maybe come. From critics or from people who've i mean again Ansel, books on ansel adams um i'm trying to remember nancy newhall's book for example is very very good mm -hmm. it is illustrated with ansel's photographs eloquent light uh i think so no it's not what's the title of it? i think it's the autobiography anyway the whether it's the official autobiography i'm not sure i haven't got it on my shelves at the moment um and and then <laughs> Edward Weston's day books. I mean, there you go. I'm going to have to borrow that off you and reread it. <laughs> so this is very unfair on people listening to a podcast because we've just, David's just shown us a copy of The Eloquent Light um, by Nancy Newhall, which is a magnificent book on, on Ansel Adams. Uh, Edward Weston's day books, uh, as a young photographer in particular, I found them really, really inspiring, very interesting on the creative process. I mean, it's honestly, it's probably not that really well written, but it was written not to be read particularly, but except by him. And maybe that's why they're so revealing. Um, so I, I love that, that sort of the written contribution. One of the things I love about uh, the On Landscape articles that I read is yeah, it's lovely to see the photos, but it's often the writing for me that, that provides the kind of moments of real insight. But, it into, but actually, that's not really your question, because the question is much more probably about how photography, how photographs work together on the page. Is it? I don't know whether how the se sequence. It, it's the whole. It's the whole combination, really. It's. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think in, in many ways the same. I'm thinking of um, Guy Talon, Galen Rowell, um, people who who I mean they they write a lot, but anything that just has a slice of people's lives associated with it I quite like to read as well doesn't mean I don't like a, a photography book that is just pictures that has its own appeal as well but quite often it's it's that extra uh, literary side of it that I enjoy David um yeah I I, I think uh, you can sort of categorize the photography books that I really like into sort of two two groups I suppose there are there are ones which are um sort of visual poems uh where the the body of work uh creates that that feeling of a 
uh, an extended um, insight into the photographer's vision, I suppose. Uh, and 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 the best photographs, I think, are are poetic in the sense that they leave room for the viewer. They're not just describing something. They're not they're not just answers. Um, and then the other the other set would be the ones with accompanying text, where I think the text really supports um, the work. So, for instance, uh, the Kinga and Bowden uh, Stone Canyons of the Colorado Plateau is one of my mm. all time favorite books of the uh, Desert Southwest because the the writing is is absolutely beautiful, and and uh, Jack's photography is great as well. Um, and it's lovely sometimes if you if you look at something like uh, yeah if you, a history of of a photographer like we mentioned Western. Um, I've got quite a few biographies and autobiographies of of well known photographers because they do give that insight into the into the creative process. But you can get the insight into the creative process not just from photography books. So um, Joe put me on uh, to a book called. Um, I think it, you'll remind me, Joe, but I think it's called um, "All All Roads Now Lead to France." Is it? What's what's? Yes, yes. All roads lead to France. Yeah, uh, which is about the, um, the the poets just before the First World War, wasn't it? Um, yeah, uh, and it's just really interesting to see uh, their the way they work together, their rivalries. Um, the way they fell out with each other, uh, and all of that, and you realise that it's the the creative life is fairly universal. Uh, sometimes the volumes turned up to eleven, and sometimes the volumes down at two. But lots of patterns kind of repeat in all of that. So, um, so I sometimes think that the best photography books are not the most obvious ones. They're not the most spectacular. They're they're the they're the quieter ones, I think. So. Um, I think if we if we ignore the um, ones that have a, a literary side, which which ones work as visual poems? Which which would you choose as examples? Uh, well, we've mentioned a couple of them already, but um, so we talked about uh, Nature's Chaos, I think, didn't we, on, a, on an earlier yeah. podcast? But um, Paul Wakefield, uh, Paul Wakefield, yeah. or um, Strands, Tervuren, which I think yes. is just yeah, yeah. fantastic. Uh, John Sexton, Places of Power, not strictly landscape. Um, uh, Andrew Nadolsky, the end of the land, I think is 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 that because you know he applied himself to, to to the one idea basically for fourteen years, I think was it? Um, yeah. Uh, those kind of books, I think, are have real depth and subtlety because uh, there's a time scale to them quite often. Um, so people have developed their ideas over that time, uh, become more and more nuanced. Uh, and also, uh, I think um, it gives the gives you real insight into the photographer's viewpoint. And if you think about it, when when we look at a photograph, we are we we take on literally take on the photographer's viewpoint in terms of the physical space that's represented. Okay, it might be um, uh, manipulated in terms of color or perspective or whatever by the photographic process. Uh, but also with a body of work, um, you start to take on their philosophical viewpoint, maybe to some extent, or even their political viewpoint, or as well as their aesthetic viewpoint. Um, so uh, that I think is the to try and see a, 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 a wider body of work. I think is always the best thing to do. I think it's very difficult to judge a photographer from a single book, 
Uh, maybe a retrospective like uh, simply on Dombrovskis would be an exception. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, another question. Um, how do you see your own? I, I mean, this has been an, uh, not the best creative period, I suppose. Uh, it might have its effects later on, but um, before the lockdown, how how did you see your photography changing recently? I know we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but um, David, you just come back from Africa, yeah, and are work working in a different uh, medium. Um, yeah, well, I, I I went to Africa for two years, as, as some of your um, readers and listeners no doubt know. Uh, and I partially that was because I wanted to to um, have that experience and to help with conservation to some extent, however minor. Um, uh, but partly it was that I think I'd reached the end of. Um, a journey, a part of the journey for me photographically. Uh, I was becoming increasingly disenchanted with, with large format, although I still love the, the notion of using um, movement. Uh, but I found it very difficult to kind of make photographs with it anymore just because of the, the physical difficulties of the camera and getting film processed and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm not, I'm too much of a klutz to be somebody who, processes my own film it would end up being a complete disaster um so uh so i needed a break and and i took a break and i basically made very few photographs in two years um and when i came back from africa i think i had uh well let's just say renewed vigor i i i had, I had spent some time um latterly in africa uh, using the Myrex tilt shift adapter and working out how to how to apply tilt shift to a to a um, a digital um, mirrorless camera uh, with the Sony and I very quickly I think got to grips with that when I came back and and I had quite a quite a good period creatively for me uh, the exhibition that I had at Joe's Gallery uh, last year more than half the photographs were taken in the seven or eight months prior to the exhibition. So um, that, that's, that's for me, that's a very high production rate. Uh, so I think it, um, I think it's changed. It, it's changed for me just by changing format predominantly because now subjects are available that were not previously available to me uh, yeah. because of, uh, because of contrast range or because the physical dimensions of the camera, um, because of not being able to get a long enough lens or, or whatever um, reasons. Um, so that's, that's opened up um, a whole bunch of um, new possibilities. Uh, and I, I think I've also started experimenting more, you know, with a, with a large format, I spent most of my time to, trying to make sure everything was sharp. Um, a terrible bourgeois concept, <laughs> and uh, and I'm now experimenting more with making stuff unsharp, <laughs> but not not with a um ICM route, but just uh, differential focusing, just playing about with critical choices about what's sharp and what's not sharp. Um, which is you know something that so many fields of photography use all the time. Most wildlife photographers have to make that choice. Uh, 
you know, how much do they want sharp? And you've got a 600mm lens at f4. You can't have very much sharp is the answer to that. So, uh, but it, but as a coming from the large format landscape tradition, uh, I had always kind of gone down that route of Edward Weston or Ansel Adams or any of those people who tried to make everything as, as sort of hyper real, I suppose. Uh, and now I'm, uh, I'm going in a slightly more surreal direction. Um, I suppose, but we'll see how that goes. But I think it's been good. Yeah, taking a break was a very good thing, I think, for me. And Joe, um, I know you, you're you, you've been embracing a little bit more uh, chaos, let's say, in some, of your, in some of your photography. Yeah, I, I yeah. Well, I, I I don't know whether that's how I would characterise it, but I do think that uh, for me the 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 process of change has been ongoing certainly since I, I changed to predominantly shooting digital uh, which is uh, 12 years ago and having I made a start before then but I was still very much a committed large format film photographer um, and then um, it, it has to be said but you know it was the moment I decided to buy a medium format digital back uh, because of the you know, vast investment involved it's something you have to commit to and in the in the succeeding years, I, I, I was able to make prints of a good quality, and um, in terms of sharpness and detail and color uh, and so on. Um, but I got very distracted uh, trying to figure out how to how to use a camera for kind of digital digitally inspired means like uh, panoramas, for example, and uh, collages and sometimes blends and all the things that are enabled by digital. Um, and and part of me, I think, got a little bit lost, um, which, I, you know, meant that I was, although I didn't really know why, I was actually not miserable, but not feeling fulfilled by my photography for quite a long time. Um, and and while I, I would say that I think I've I've actually probably acquired quite a lot of bad habits from shooting digital compared with shooting film, um, so in the sense that I'm I'm quite I quite exp I love experimenting. I like me messing about, and it's I'll I'll give myself um, you know David, how did you describe it? Testing by rea using reality, reality testing um, is how I do things, and and I do. Uh, obviously you can do that with digital and I love that that part of the process I like the feeling of involvement that, that you have whereas when you're shooting film you're effectively shooting blind to um, a protocol that you know and understand and because of that it, it limits the way you can see it limits it, that limitation as we've discussed before can be really creative and very productive um, so, sorry to interrupt Joe but so so um yeah yeah, it's it's really interesting because um, I, I have the same feelings I think about about this process. Did you find it um, uh, not just disconcerting, but actually um, really unsettling um, that that moving away from the protocol and uh, let, let's say you know you hang let's let's use a let's use a metaphor. You're hanging by your fingertips from a cliff top, and you let go. <laughs> To see where see where you land, um, because you um yeah because because you can just completely wing it with digital, uh, but we we grew up with a with a very ordered way of making photographs because as you say you you had no choice and so did well, my question is did you find that unsettling yeah 
Yeah, well, I think so. Uh, I, I also took, uh, you know, thousands of photographs that, while they might have had utility, didn't inspire me. And, you know, I think probably all of us on one level or another want to make pictures that we love, don't we? I mean, mm. I, I do anyway. Uh, that's that's what keeps me going. I'm waiting for it to happen. For well, me. Yeah, you, <laughs> you say that, but maybe your your expectations of love are higher. Who knows? But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, I, I, I sort of just get, get, want to get enjoyment from it and feel that this, this is something that... Um, I don't know. It's a complex relationship, but anyway, I, I think uh, let me let me just quickly try to answer your question, Tim. In terms of, I think there are stylistic differences that are quite big as a result. I, one thing I do think I've tried to do is to return more to my roots in terms of making single pictures. I don't do panoramas now unless there's a very very specific reason for it. Uh, I don't. I, I still use movements, so my Linhof allows me to do ninety percent of the things I could do with an ebony. Um, yes, I can't do rear tilt, but I can do all the other stuff, and uh, and the lenses are good. So while it's it's maybe not quite five by four quality, but you know when all is said and done, no need to film process and all, all the rest of it, the quality of of the files is very very good. So I can make lovely prints very easily, and I love that. But w the main difference I think conceptually for me is is doing away with the film signature, the raw file being a uh, a kind of not quite a blank canvas but in terms of interpretation you need to interpret you need to decide what you're going to say and because color you know as we we often come across this well we're, we're often talking about it now aren't we more as we do podcasts and, and privately um, color is such a fantastic exciting and difficult challenge in photography that's we now have a great deal more control of it than we did in the past. And I think we're all, I certainly am still learning the tools, um, you know, whether it's Photoshop, Lightroom, Capture One, etc. cetera. Um, and I, I want to, I, I really want to, I wouldn't use the word master because that's presumptuous, but at least get better uh, at it in order to understand um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to feel uh, and try to describe um, on paper, what, what I'm feeling within, what I wish to feel, because I think there is a, is a, a sort of strange balance between the scene experience and the interpretive one. And, and I'm somebody who doesn't believe in, a, in, the, in the kind of mantra that I want to express what I felt at the time. Actually, quite often, it's not about that. It's about how I'm interpreting the image in retrospect, in reflection, um, where its potential uh, to me, its meaning to me, um, comes to life. And using color, tone, and uh, texture, uh, and luminance, and, and all of the raw material of, of the print is what makes it exciting. It's what brings the photograph to life. I love the process of being out with my camera. I also love the process of trying to bring it to life in a way that I couldn't do, you know, um, from before then. Okay, I have another question for you, Jack, which is, <laughs> um, do you feel, I mean, I, I think one of the big problems about photography, personally, I feel one of the big problems about photography uh, is is the, the, the reference to a um, technically correct way of doing things. So I'm, I'm assuming that what you, you did fine art, you, you painted, um, nobody tells you that you have to use a particular blue or a particular yellow or a particular red yet we are we have a reference 
with photography, we, especially with landscape photography, yeah. I suppose. We have a reference that we're supposed to return to. How much do you feel that inhibits the creative process? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a fantastic question. I'm certainly not going to be able to answer it in more, whatever time we have remaining. <laughs> um, but but uh, what I love about this issue, and, and David, your point, I think, is based on the fact that if if we're trying to make something credible, you you, you have a kind of internal color language that you can compare against an, a, a personal experience. And yet, uh, you know, and that's a that's a starting point. You could at least try to, as it were, to master the idea of reproducing what you see, which is certainly not the raw file, right? You still have to adjust um, the, the the color sliders, as we know. Um, and yet, there are many photographers who have taken the color, and I think of Mark Littlejohn in particular, and and taken it on a journey of their own, and it works. It works in its own language and and if we if we look at painting throughout the well late 19th century and and all through the 20th century painters have in of both landscape and recognizable scenes not just abstraction have used color incredibly creative and non-obvious ways i mean gauguin is a good exemplar um you know real pioneer and then you know, follows on with Matisse and was it was he a Fauvist? Um, I can't remember. Yeah, the Fauvists, Yeah. Uh, yes, and you know, the Fauvists, the angry men, or whatever it meant uh, in, in Italian. Um, you know, the and you know, here people photographing orange heads with green shadows and uh, and so on, and and yet in their own um, in in their own framework, the, those colours work. Now, I'm not I'm not about to go out and do that personally, but I definitely will twist the color or move the colors in a landscape now um, so that it works for me and of course you can never know what other people are going to think and and ultimately i don't you, you can't worry about that you've got to you've got to be prepared uh to to experiment to learn to create your own language which i think mark has as uh, for me anyway uh, he's really uh kind of shown the way in that respect i think it's and, quite surprising how far People can take colour and it still be acceptable, believable. Um, I know we've talked about this before. And, and realising that digital cameras don't record a perfect representation of colour is quite enabling as well because he then gives you permission to do something that you change it to what looks right for you. And it may not be exactly what was there or accurate. And I don't think that's a good goal. Film. The beauty of Velvio is always its inaccuracies, not its accuracies, I think, in many ways. Agreed. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, I think it's in its own terms, it, it needs to work rather than with necessarily with, with reference to, to, to memory or, or what you're looking at out the window or uh, at the moment, for example, which is what we're mainly doing. I mean, if we if we were to do that, everything would be incredibly green, as we know <laughs> yeah. uh, at the moment. Too green, probably. I mean, I, I find do a lot of woodland photography, and there's a lot more magenta in my base interpretation of color um, than one would normally expect because the green is otherwise so dominant. So, it, you know, we we use the terms dominance and balance, for example, a lot in critiquing and analysis of, of a photograph to try to understand uh what it means to us when we look at a picture and how things work but certainly if i look out the window it looks lovely and it's green and all that but i i would still uh 
I know that if I were to photograph it, those greens will be too vivid. They'll look too saturated and they'll just look too damn green. Mm. <laughs> Can't ignore green. Yeah. So, no. <laughs> so not that green's a bad colour, but it does need to be managed and and, and, and balanced. And, you know, so, well, David does think it's a bad colour. No, I don't <laughs> think it's a bad colour. I, uh, I think it has to be, you just have to be, like you say, you have to manage it. You have to be careful with it because because that yeah. reason... The reason being, you you can't ignore it. We see uh, hugely more greens than any other part of the spectrum, which is why there are two green um, pixels for every red or green one on the on the color sensor of a camera. Um, I think we see about forty thousand shades of green, uh, and you know people talk about not being able to ignore red or orange or something like that in the scene. Green is, if if anything, more insistent. Uh, if it's not a key part of the composition, it can be very distracting mm. indeed. So I, I don't, yeah, I think people have got this idea that I hate green. I don't hate green at all. I just think you just have to be careful. You know, it's a, it's like, uh, it's the uh, crack cocaine of colours. <laughs> yes, can but I... you did put, you did then make a crucifix sign uh, on our Zoom call just then <laughs> when I mentioned green. So. <laughs> anyway, I, I mean, just, there... just, sorry. Can I ask us one question about color? Because it's one of the one of the things you have as soon as you started using digital is is trying to come up with a self consistent model to try. I mean, everybody wants to create work that has a consistency to it, and the freedom of adjusting color and digital is is something that can be hard to um, control or try and build your own framework of color. I think is the difficult thing. Did you struggle with that? For a while, Joe. Uh, yes, d definitely. I wouldn't say I've, I, I've I've solved it now, um, or, or that there's a code that you can you can crack here. But I think what you can do is just keep practicing, and and be confident and experiment. And I I certainly I I, I think using tactics in post production that uh, encourage experimentation. So uh, you know, it's in the old sort of run the slider all the way left or right, and then come back rather than tentatively approaching things is it's really helpful it's right liberating it's good fun and it also enables you to understand how how color works uh, how colors work against and for one another a big well, one thing i would say that might be an interesting um observ observation for some people listening is the the act of separating colors is on the whole a useful tactic it's actually how our brain tends to help form our picture of the world um, to help define it better. And, and digital raw files don't necessarily do that terribly well, so depending particularly on how the color balance is set on the camera at the time. So um, learning to separate colors, uh, which, which can be done using various tech tactics that both David and I teach, um, is is a really really useful tactic, and and that's a good starting point for then developing your own color language. It might be a good idea to do a, a capture one video on that at some point. Joe. Yeah, happy happy to do that. Um, a final question prompted by what David was showing us earlier. One is, uh, do you have any alternative creative outlets in your lives? And I'll start with you, Joe, because I want to go with David last. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, David's is bound to be a better answer than mine. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I have to come up with something really exciting now, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> you too, definitely. Well, I, I must say that uh, at home at the moment, I'm doing 
lots of editing and, and archiving and I'm, I'm actually have really enjoyed that side of it but it still all really revolves around photography with the possible exception of gardening um, with which I'm helping Jen. Um, Jen is really the artist in our uh, family when it comes to gardening um, and I'm merely the humble labourer but um, that's a good distribution of, of work. I'm really enjoying being out in the garden and you know learning a little bit as uh, you know as I'm blending manure and compost and soil and you know all that stuff uh, the important stuff that needs to be done um, as for as for other things I wish I could say that I mean I used to follow sport quite a lot just you know because I used to play quite a bit when I was younger still well I haven't played cricket for a while but I, I, I did play cricket in, into my late 50s um, and and so that interest is there uh, but can I say I've got any other fantastic creative occupation? Not really. Sorry. David. Accounting. Creative accounting. That's Creative accounting. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, was trying to think of, I was trying to think of what the least likely thing that I could imagine David doing as a, as a creative hobby. And, and, yeah, I think this would be on the list. What, what are you doing recently, David? Uh, at the moment, I'm building a model boat, a wooden model boat. Yeah. From... From from a kit or just from pieces of wood? <coughs> um, it's uh, it's a kit. Um, it comes with practically zero instructions, so just a lot of parts and some <laughs> very skimpy diagrams. Uh, so it's a uh, it's the old puzzle solving um, thing, which I th- uh, we talked about in terms of uh, one of the joys of doing any creative processes about puzzle solving. So uh, I mean, I, I I used to be a carpenter. I was a carpenter for a while. I did a lot, I've done a lot of woodworking. I built um, a house, an office building, uh, wood, and all sorts of stuff over the years. And I love working with wood. And um, current circumstances mean that I, don't, I have no room for a wood workshop, but I do have enough room on my desk to build a model boat out of wood. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and for the for the audience or listeners, this this is about two foot long, is it? And it's, uh, what type of boat is it? It's yeah, seventy centimeters long. It's a Faroese fishing yawl um from the early part of the 20th century uh it's a boat that's now in iceland and has been renamed arnanes fantastic i think we shall have a uh, a work in progress photograph to go with the article <laughs> agree great idea <laughs> thank you very much david and joe thanks Tim. thank you uh, we'll speak to you next week <laughs>